Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we can gather together this evening for the present freedoms that we enjoy. Uh, We thank you for the many blessings that you bestow upon us. We thank you that we can be good stewards of the time that you've given to us, that we can set aside this time uh, for fellowship, uh, for prayer, and for study in your word. Father, we just pray this evening as we take this time to look into your word and to consider this uh, subject on soteriology, that this will be a time of fruitful understanding that we will be sensitive to the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit who helps us to understand the biblical text, and that we will be able to take these truths and to apply them to our lives and grow thereby. Father, we thank you. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so last time we met, we uh, had worked through the attributes of God. We spent some time to talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, how... uh, Uh, A number of passages reveal the plurality of the Godhead. We looked at passages like Genesis 1.27, Genesis 11, uh, uh, 5 and 6, and uh, and other passages in the New Testament that uh, mention the plurality, the members of the Godhead. And then we took some time to look at those passages that clearly point out uh, the three persons within the Godhead that are all referred to as God, whether that's God the Father, or God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit. And then we spent some time working on the attributes of God, and we went through that just so that we understand that God is one in essence, but three in person, co-equal, co-infinite, co-eternal, and shares the same attributes. And uh, all three members of the Godhead are worthy of all worship and praise and honor. And uh, Tonight we're going to begin uh, the first of a number of lessons where we will look at how each member within the Trinity uh, worked to provide our salvation. This was teamwork uh, among the members of the Godhead. And so tonight we'll look at God the Father, and uh, this is fairly straightforward. Uh, some of these passages are just pretty, pretty plain and simple with regard to what they say. Uh, but that's all right. I really like to go to the Scripture uh, as much as I can because the Scripture just plainly says what it says in a lot of passages. Granted, there are some difficult passages, and there are some difficult doctrines. Uh, Even trying to understand the doctrine of the Trinity is a challenging doctrine, (laughs) Uh, very much so, as is trying to understand uh, the doctrine of the hypostatic union, that we have the second member of the Godhead, God the Son, who at a point in time 2,000 years ago came into the world and took upon himself humanity. And that happened at the time of the virgin conception, uh, in which God the Holy Spirit supernaturally worked in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and uh, she became uh, uh, pregnant and carried the humanity of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the uh, proper theological term for that is Christotokos. She's the bearer of the humanity of Christ. As I mentioned before, she is not Theotokos. She's not the mother of God. Uh, God doesn't have a mother. God is eternal. He doesn't have an origin. And so she is the mother of the humanity of Christ. And the virgin conception, uh, we call that parthenogenesis, uh, that Jesus was supernaturally conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and uh, that that when he came forth, she was, uh, in fact, virgin-born. Now, other passages, uh, such as in uh, Mark and Matthew, make it very clear that Jesus had brothers and sisters. So Mary uh, uh, continued on in her relationship with Joseph and had other children. But Jesus is unique. He came in hypostatic union in the sense that he is undiminished deity combined together forever with perfect humanity. Now, to try to understand that union is very challenging because you have two natures that, by their very nature, uh, don't seem to be compatible. And, uh, and so this is clearly a work of God. Uh, as God the Son, as God, he is infinite, uh, and he is eternal, whereas the humanity was added in time, and Christ is finite. He was finite in his being. He was finite in his understanding. And there were times that Jesus operated from his divine nature, when he forgave sins, when he offered eternal life, when he healed the sick and raised the dead and caused the blind to see and the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. And, you know, when he did all these things, he was operating out of his divinity. 
Uh, but as a man, he could get hungry, he could get tired. And uh, as, uh, as God, God doesn't get hungry, God doesn't get tired. Uh, God is omnipresent, he's equally and fully everywhere, whereas Christ in his humanity was present, he was, again, finite. God is uh, life, he has life in himself, uh, and we talked about that, we talked about how he is living, we talked about the doctrine of aseity, uh, that he is self-existent, uh, whereas in Christ, uh, uh, whereas God cannot die, Christ could die in his humanity. He not only could die, but he did. He died upon a cross. And Peter makes note of this when he says that in his own body he bore our sins, and that reference to his body there is clearly a reference to his humanity. But how do you bring these two natures together? How do you reconcile these into one person. Well, like the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, the doctrine of the hypostatic union comes with certain challenges. We know that the Scripture teaches this clearly. The Scripture clearly teaches this. In fact, we're going to spend a whole evening uh, here in a few weeks talking about the doctrine of the hypostatic union. That's going to be one of our studies. And, uh, and once we get into looking at God the Son, uh, there's a lot of information there in Scripture. We're going to be several weeks looking at God the Son so there's going to be a lot of unpacking there, but I think just like trying to understand the Trinity, trying to understand the doctrine of the hypostatic union, uh, we will also, in a few months from now, also uh, jump into the doctrine of election. And uh, that is a, a fun doctrine, but that is also a very challenging doctrine. And there are aspects to it uh, that, are, that are difficult to understand. And I liken, them very, I liken the doctrine of election very much to the, to the doctrine of the Trinity, and to the doctrine of the hypostatic union. There are just some things that we know that the Scripture teaches, uh, but how do we grasp it? Well, I think in a very limited way, uh, because we are finite, you cannot pour the ocean into a thimble, and uh, our finite grasp of things is very limited, so we struggle with some of these things. But tonight, we're, we're looking at God the Father, Oh, another reason for my mentioning the attributes was just simply to point out that when we look at the attributes, we will see how uh, a number of them become quite pronounced uh, when we look at the cross, uh, most notably the attributes of righteousness, justice, and love. Uh, those attributes we will focus on uh, uh, particularly in the future. But it was just one of those things where uh, I think having those attributes in mind helps us to be able to frame a lot of what we're going to consider in the weeks and months ahead. Now, God the Father is seen as the initiator, planner, and orchestrator of the salvation of mankind. And this because he is loving, merciful, and kind. 1 Timothy 2.4 tells us that he desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of uh, and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And in Second uh, Peter 3, 9, uh, it tells us, uh, let me read it here, it says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now, this is the divine side, and we're going to see the divine side of uh, our salvation, and that's what we're looking at here. Now, salvation is necessary because of the problem of sin in the human race. And remember, we had spent some time a while back uh, looking at Romans, and we spent a, a, some time looking at a number of passages in Romans. And one of the key passages that we looked at was over in Romans chapter 5. And in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 10, uh, Paul uses several terms. He uses four terms here to, to describe the state of man. Uh, the first one is the word helpless in verse 6. He says, for while we were still helpless. And we must understand this uh, because uh, when one teaches the doctrine of grace, the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, human works are, are removed. Now, that is a blow to human pride. That is an absolute hammer blow to human pride. And when you teach the doctrine of salvation by grace, uh, that is an extreme offense uh, to people who operate on pride. 
because they always want to feel like they have something to contribute to their salvation. Well, we don't contribute anything to our salvation. The only thing we contribute, and I don't even know that it would be, it's not a compliment, but uh, basically our contribution is sin, because that's what Christ took upon himself at the cross, and death, because he died. And, uh, and so that's, that's, that if, if we gave anything to salvation, and, and again, that's not a compliment to us, and we didn't even ask for it. Uh, God did this uh, because of who he is and not because of who we are. But we must understand the state of man as being completely fallen. And so Paul's word here, uh, his passage here, is, 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 uh, is very straightforward. And Paul doesn't mince words. Paul just, he shoots straight. But he says, for while we were still helpless, that's us, at the right time, Christ died for who? For the ungodly. He died for the ungodly. And, and so we have to have a true estimation of who we are from the biblical perspective. And the Word of God literally defines reality. It literally defines reality. And so this is the divine estimation of who we are. Uh, and so while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And we, I talked before, and we're going to focus on this in the future, but the word for translates the Greek preposition huper, huper. And it's one of two, uh, two prepositions. The other one is anti. Uh, and both of these prepositions communicate the idea of substitution, that Christ died as a substitute for the ungodly. Now, he goes on in verse 7, he says, For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. Uh, And we can understand that from a human perspective. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, that's a third word that he uses there. And again, he points out here that Christ died who pair? He died as a substitute for us. Verse 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. And here's the fourth word, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So, Uh, Paul makes the record very clear that we are enemies, that we are sinners, that we are ungodly, that we are helpless. And, uh, And so, you know, this is the divine estimation. And it's when we understand this uh, that we are completely helpless uh, before a righteous and holy God and condemned uh, in and of ourselves that salvation then becomes uh, truly salvation. Because salvation is never what we do for God. Let me be absolutely 100% clear on this. Salvation is never what we do for God. Salvation is what God has done for us through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, uh, and so we want to be very clear on this. So again, salvation is necessary because of the problem of sin in the human race. All mankind is utterly helpless to bring about a remedy by human effort. Everyone is said to be, according to Ephesians 4.18, darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And Ephesians 2.1, Paul is talking to these saints, and he's describing their life before they came to faith in Christ, that they were dead in their trespasses and sins. They were dead. Uh, And this refers to spiritual death spiritual death. There are several different kinds of death that are mentioned in the Bible. And spiritual death, uh, by the way, whenever you see the term death, you should really think of the term, you should really think of separation. We think of death as cessation of life, but that's really not the idea. Uh, The idea of death is that of separation. In fact, when you think of spiritual death, it is separation from God in time. It is separation from God in time. The second death, which is the lake of fire, is separation from God for eternity. And even at the point of physical death, there's a separation. There's a separation of the soul, the immaterial part of man, from the body. And um, 
And so you think of Ecclesiastes 12.7, which says, And the body shall return to the dust, and the spirit, the ruach, the immaterial part of man, shall return to God who gave it. And so when we think of death, we think of separation from God. Now, we are trapped in sin and stand guilty before a holy and a righteous God and are completely unable to save ourselves. If there's anything in the last (laughs) nine or ten lessons I think that I have tried to drive the point is that we are completely unable to save ourselves. We bring absolutely nothing, nothing to our salvation. And I have a quote here from Warren Wiersbe. He says, The unbeliever is not sick, he's dead. He does not need resuscitation, he needs resurrection. All lost sinners are dead, and the only difference between one sinner and another is the state of decay. The lost derelict on Skid Row may be more decayed outwardly than the unsaved society leader, but both are dead in sin, and one corpse cannot be more dead than another. This means that our world is one vast graveyard filled with people who are dead while they live, end quote. Now, the truth of it is, is that if God had not made a way for us to be saved, we would, in fact, be forever lost. Robert Leitner, here, quoting from his handbook on evangelical theology, he says, God is the only one who could solve the problem which man's sin presented to him. After man's fall, God the Father began in time the plan of salvation, which he devised before time began. This divine plan centered in his Son, in his divine Son. Uh, John 3.16, he gave his only begotten Son because he so loved the world. And then 1 John 3.16, hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. And then 1 John 4, 9, in this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. And that's taken from his Handbook of Evangelical Theology, pages 189 and 90. And uh, all of this is available to you in the notes, and you can chase all this down in the footnotes. I've provided the, the references there. Now, thank God that he intervened. Uh, that he broke into time and space, and he displayed his mercy, love, and grace upon mankind. So here, a wonderful passage from Ephesians 2, 4 through 9, uh, the Apostle Paul wrote, he said, But God, being rich in mercy, because, and notice here, and notice, and, and don't miss this, as you're reading through, think about the attributes of God that we studied uh, last week, because a lot of these attributes are brought in as uh, reference points with regard to our salvation. Because when we understand the attributes of God, we not only understand characteristics that are essential to his nature, but we understand why he does what he does, what motivates him, what drives him. And so you can, you can see these words pop up as we, as we work through these passages. So again, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us. Notice verse 5. Even when we were dead in our transgressions. Not sweet, not lovely, not wonderful. We were not, are not. Uh, that's not the picture of mankind. So even when we were dead... Even when we were dead in our transgressions, uh, he made us alive together with Christ. And, uh, and notice uh, there the latter part of verse 5, uh, where he says, By grace you have been saved. Now he's going to bring up that word grace again. And the word grace translates the Greek noun kodos. Kodos. And uh, we're going to spend some time in the future unpacking grace, too, because grace is beautiful. I'm a grace man. I love grace. And uh, salvation comes to us by grace. Very, very clear. Uh, So by grace, you have been saved. By grace, not by works. Not by works at all. (laughs) Uh, Paul is very clear. Remember back in Romans chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, where he makes it very plain you know, that, uh, that, that, you know, for the one who works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. 
but God is the one who justifies the ungodly. And, uh, and he imputes to us his righteousness. It's not our righteousness. Our righteousness gets us nowhere. Remember Isaiah 64, 6, where he says that all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy rag. So if we, bring, uh, if we put all of our good deeds in a bag and bring it to God and demand the trade in value, it'll be worth one filthy rag. So we are not saved by works. We are not saved by works. Uh, he says, by grace you have been saved, verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace uh, in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And uh, and here we have a, a very clear statement, for by grace you have been saved through faith. By grace you have been saved through faith. And uh, the word saved here translates that Greek uh, verb sozo, and uh, we spent some time a few weeks ago when we were looking uh, at the use of the Greek word soter, soteriza, or soteria, and sozo. And, uh, and here it, uh, it is that wonderful verb that we find here, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and caudus here is unmerited favor, it is undeserved kindness. Uh, because it's not giving us what we deserve. It is not. Uh, So by grace you have been saved through faith, and even faith doesn't save. Christ saves. Faith is merely the instrument by which we receive that salvation, because we trust in Christ and Christ alone. And Paul is very clear here, uh, that not of yourselves, okay? Uh, It, that is salvation, is the gift of God. Now, if salvation is the gift of God, that means that it was paid for in full by the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we have to bring anything to pay for our salvation, then it's not a gift. At that moment, it means we bought it. Uh, But we do not. We are not saved by works. Salvation is very clearly the gift of God. And Again, Paul could not be clearer, verse 9, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, those who think that they can save themselves or or participate in their salvation, they have something to boast about, but not before God. Uh, That's human pride at work. And so uh, uh, when we think about the gospel, and again, the picture of mankind, because when you think about the gospel, you really should understand that the gospel is the solution to a problem. It's really what it is. It's the solution to a problem. But you have to get back to, well, what's the problem? Well, the problem is first that God is holy and righteous. Now, that's not a problem for God. (laughs) Uh, The problem is with us because we are anything but holy and righteous. We are sinners uh, uh, in Adam, sinners by nature, and sinners by choice. So we, so we fail on multiple fronts. Uh, and we cannot save ourselves, absolutely cannot save ourselves at all. And so when we understand uh, that the gospel is the solution to a problem, we have to deal with the problem. We have to deal with the problem of sin and the fallenness of mankind, and the utter helplessness of mankind. And it's only when we understand our utter helplessness uh, to do anything to save ourselves before an absolutely righteous and holy God, it is only then that we are really open to salvation. Uh, That is, to receive it as a gift, because that's exactly how God gives it. It's a gift. Uh, And it's not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, the Father's actions... Uh, to provide our salvation are based on his love for mankind. Uh, And God loves because of who he is and not because of the beauty or worth of the object. God loves because of who he is and not because of the beauty or worth of the object. Uh, And remember that when we looked at one of the attributes of God, it's that God is love. God is love. Now, this love that is set forth here, here we have the noun form, uh, agape, and we think of the verb form, agapao. But I think of the passage in Matthew 5 where Jesus tells us to love our enemies. 
And, uh, and that's the kind of love that is being described there. It is a love that is not emotional. In fact, I think in many cases it's contrary to emotion. Uh, because uh, if, if we're operating on emotion, well, first of all, you can't conjure up a warm, fuzzy feeling for the person who has hurt you and uh, may want to hurt you again. Uh, and so, you know, you're, you're not asked to conjure up a warm, fuzzy feeling. You're, you're asked to operate by a higher form of love, a commitment love, that in effect seeks God's best in the life of the other person. And it is a love that is exercised by faith, uh, not feelings. And so when you understand uh, that love your enemies is, a, uh, is in the imperative mood, you understand that that is a directive that appeals to the mind and to the will, uh, not to the emotion. Uh, you're not commanded to have a warm, fuzzy feeling. Uh, you are commanded to obey the directive, and you are commanded to love your enemies, and you do that by praying for them, by sharing the gospel, uh, if, if you have opportunity and they're willing to listen, and to speak the truth in love, and to show kindness when you have opportunity. Uh, and this becomes really the challenge. But God demonstrates, remember, his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners. So again, this is what motivated God, that God is love. Uh, which means that love is part of his nature. And so God loves because it is his nature to love. He loves again because of who he is and not because we are sweet and lovely and wonderful. Even after uh, salvation, even after we have forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life and the gift of righteousness, even afterwards, we still continue to fall short. We still continue to sin. And that is a problem in the life of of Christians because the sin nature is not removed and we're not removed from this world. That'll happen. It's, it's going to happen in the future. By death or by rapture, we will leave this world one way or another. Um, uh, but until then, we still continue to have our failings. But God's love doesn't fail. And remember that God is immutable, so his love doesn't change. And God is eternal, which means his love is eternal. And God having a perfect love means that it doesn't increase, it doesn't decrease. He doesn't love you more one moment and less the next. It's a perfect love. It's the love of God. It is God's love for us. And, uh, and we should understand that. Now, that love can take different forms because the, because the love that reaches down and comforts us in our time of difficulty and sorrow is the same love that can reach down and spank us when we need a good whooping uh, because he whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And, of course, he is the God of all compassion, and he is, uh, he's certainly very compassionate towards us when we need it, but he's also firm. Uh, he's firm uh, when we need it, and that's love, too. So uh, God's love doesn't increase or decrease. He doesn't love us more one moment and less the next. But love is what motivated him to provide our salvation. And this from eternity past, before uh, any of us even existed, before we had a chance to say or do anything, that it was based on God's sovereign will that he chose from himself, from his own nature. So you see, now you bring sovereignty in uh, because God chose because he simply chose to do it. Uh, because it's consistent with his nature. So you see how once you get into looking at these things from the eternal perspective, uh, when you begin to think about his attributes of sovereignty and righteousness and love and mercy and grace and goodness, and these attributes all of a sudden begin to percolate up in our thinking as we begin to think about these, uh, these passages. But again, we're trying to understand it from the perspective or from the understanding of God the Father. Now, God the Father's soteriological work... Uh, so let's move back here. Let's talk about his eternal plan for salvation. So God the Father's soteriological work is traced back to what he planned before time began. Uh, he was motivated to provide for our salvation before we even existed. I have a quote here from Leitner. He says, We are often led to believe that our salvation began when we made our decision to trust Christ as Savior. The fact is, God was at work on our behalf long before that time. Now, a wonderful passage here is in Ephesians 1-4, where Paul wrote uh, that God the Father chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. 
Now, the word chose here translates that uh, Greek uh, verb eklegomai, and it's one of those words that we'll look at in the future. It has to do with uh, election, because God chose. Uh, He chose us in him. And when did he choose us? Before the foundation of the world, before anything existed from eternity past, God knew. He knew that we would fall. He knew that he would create. He knew that, uh, that we would fall. And he provided our salvation. He determined it. He decreed it from eternity past. And so God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. Now, that the Father has elected us to salvation is very straightforward in this passage, and again, the doctrine of election will be addressed later in this work. In months ahead, I've got a whole section, we'll set that aside, and we will unpack that subject as best as we can. For now, this passage is noted only because it speaks of the Father's salvation before the foundation of the world. Citing again from Dr. Leitner, he says here, God the Father's work in salvation centers primarily in what he did before time began. With infinite love and compassion, he acted on our behalf even before we were born. Paul told the Ephesian Christians that they had been chosen in Christ by by the Father before the foundation of the world. And to the Roman Christians, the same apostle wrote about the Father's foreknowledge, predestination, and call of them uh, before time. In 1 Peter 1-2, Peter, writing to the saints scattered throughout Asia Minor, described them as elect of God the Father. Uh, Leitner closes out in his comment here. He says, while evangelicals differ on how these and other such passages are to be understood, they all agree that that God the Father initiated the plan of salvation uh, in eternity past. And, uh, And that's really the main point of the quote here that I'm trying to pull out. Again, that they all agree that God the Father initiated the plan of salvation in eternity past. And this because, remember, we talked about the the attribute of God's omniscience, that he knows all things, that he is aware of everything. He's aware of everything in the past, the present, the future. He is all-knowing. And so in the wisdom, in the knowledge, in the counsel of God, uh, he knew these things, and from eternity past, he made a decision to provide uh, our salvation. Now, God's election starts with his sovereign choice, but also includes the individual choices of those who trust in Christ as Savior. Both are true. Now, though there is tension at this point, and this because of limited information and limited human capacity to comprehend, both God's sovereignty and human volition must be acknowledged at the same time. Citing from Leitner again here, he says, God the Father is sovereign. He must be to be God. Human responsibility is just as biblical as divine sovereignty. Jesus stressed both. Jesus said, "No one can come to me unless uh, can can come to him unless drawn by the Father." But he also said, "None who come to him would be cast out." And and citing from Paul Inns uh, from his Moody Handbook of Theology, which I recommended last week, he says. While there is human responsibility in salvation, there is first a divine side to salvation in which God sovereignly acts to secure the sinner's salvation. And, uh, and I agree with him there. <clears throat> now, the Christian must be content to live with this tension and not try to force a solution one way or the other. And again, we'll deal with this more, <laughs> we'll deal with this more in the future. <laughs> Uh, Now, the salvation of mankind, with all its details, was fully comprehended and planned by God the Father from eternity past. Uh, And it's not as though God was surprised by the fall of Lucifer and mankind. He is eternal, and his plan is eternal. Citing again from Leitner, he says, We must never view salvation as an afterthought or as the only possible way out of a hopeless dilemma on the part of God. He says the plan of salvation is as eternal as God is. God was not shocked when Satan and then man fell. He is eternal, and his plan is from eternity past to eternity future. 
And again, as, as I spent the time last week to unpack the attributes of God, you're seeing how this is beginning to play out. Well, this will continue to come to the forefront of our thinking again in the weeks and months ahead as we look at other aspects of uh, our salvation from God the Son and from God the Holy Spirit. So we'll see these more of these attributes uh, uh, get brought forth as we consider a number of passages. So there was intentionality in, uh, in my taking the time last week to, to lightly touch on that. And believe me, we touched on it in very short time. Uh, because if you ever get into studying the attributes of God, uh, you can easily uh, spend months on the attributes of God. In fact, I would argue that one of the greatest studies that you can do as a Christian is to understand uh, who God is. Theolo- it's called theology proper. If you ever pick up a systematic theology like Chafer's systematic theology or Ryrie's basic theology or any good systematic theology, Wayne... Um, um, Oh, I can't think of his name now. Anyway, there's several uh, good systematic theologies out there. But when you pick them up, one of the first things that you'll study is theology proper. And that gets into who is God, but it gets into the attributes of God, the attributes of God. And I'll tell you, that is just mind-blowing stuff to get into that and to read that. And I would highly recommend studying the attributes of God. If you have time uh, and you want to pursue that on your own and you pick up a good systematic theology, and there's several that I've already recommended, uh, definitely uh, something uh, worth your time to study. It will be, be very fruitful to you. So now let's talk about God the Father commissioning God the Son. So God the Father, from eternity past, planned salvation. Now he commissioned the Son. Now the Son agreed. The Son agreed to the Father's plan. And so God the Father commissioned God the Son to provide our salvation. Now we're going to spend some time looking at the Holy Spirit, too, because the Holy Spirit sustained Christ in his humanity during his time on earth all the way up to the cross. Uh, And so he was sustained in his humanity. And so we're going to see all three members of the Godhead here working together in collaboration. They have different roles that they play, but they work together to bring about our salvation. This is a huge undertaking. It's a big project uh, from our perspective anyway. Now for God, it was just, you know, something he decided he was going to do. Um, uh, But we'll see how this plays out among all three members. So here we see where God the Father commissioned God the Son to provide our salvation. And God the Son agreed to the Father's mission. He agreed to the Father's mission, and he, and, and he came into the world and added humanity to himself and executed the, the Father's plan perfectly. Uh, now, though Jesus said and did many things during his time on earth, of which many books have been written, his primary mission was to save sinners. His primary mission was to save sinners. Jesus said in Luke 19.10, he said, The Son of Man has come to seek... And to what? Save. Save what? That which is lost. That's me. That's you. That's all humanity. We're lost. And we need salvation. And so he came. The Son of Man has come. He came in hypostatic union. He came into the world. He lived an absolutely perfect life. We've talked about this in the past. Uh, He lived an absolutely perfect life. He committed no sin. And, uh, and he came and he executed the Father's plan perfectly. And when he went to the cross, he went to the cross and died not for his sin. He had no sin. He died for us. Who pair? That Greek preposition. Who pair? He died in our place. He died as our substitute. And so he, uh, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Uh, and in Mark 10:45, it says, "The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, to give his life a ransom for many. You see, he knew, he knew uh, that he was going to go to the cross. He knew that that was going to happen. And of course, Jesus lived a sinless life and then sacrificed himself on the cross, as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of humanity. Uh, And so through his death, burial, and resurrection, salvation is offered to all who believe in him as Savior. But the Father commissioned him, and uh, and Christ came into the world, 
and, uh, and he, he executed the Father's plan. Now, Bruce Ware, I have a quote here, he says, In eternity, the Father commissioned the Son, who then willingly laid aside the glory he had with the Father to come and purchase uh, our pardon and renewal. And, uh, and that's, that's absolutely correct. So again, we think now that from eternity past, God the Father, from his omniscience and from his sovereignty, motivated by love uh, toward us, lost sinners who are helpless, ungodly, uh, enemies of God, who cannot save ourselves, who are dead in our trespasses and sins, completely and totally lost and without any means to save ourselves, uh, God from eternity past, from his sovereignty, motivated by love, uh, came up with the plan for our salvation. And it included God the Son, whom he commissioned. He commissioned God the Son, and the Son agreed to it. The Son then came into this world and took upon himself humanity, and again, he lived an absolutely perfect life. He committed absolutely no sin. And so again, this qualified him to go to the cross and to die as our substitute, to die as our substitute. And of course, we think of those passages um, when we think of Romans 5.8, uh, namely that God was in Christ uh, reconciling the world to himself. Uh, that's 2 Corinthians 5, excuse me, uh, in that while we were yet sinners, now, there it is, Romans 5, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so we want to we wanna keep that in mind. Now, uh, let's move on to God the Father sent the Son. God the Father sent the Son. Now, it was the Father's will for the Son to go to the cross to die for lost sinners. Uh, and the Son willingly went to his death and bore the Father's wrath in our place. In fact, in John 10, Jesus makes it very clear. We've already hit on these verses, but in John 10, Jesus makes it very clear. He says, no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down. And he had the authority to lay it down, and he had the authority to take it up again. But he said, no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down. And so he willingly willingly again went uh, to the cross and bore the Father's wrath in our place. And we want to understand that as penal substitutionary atonement. Penal substitutionary atonement. Penal in the sense that he bore the penalty for our sins. He paid the, pri he, he, he paid the price and bore our sins upon the cross. And remember that while he was upon the cross, remember when the sky grew dark, and Christ, at that moment, he was crying out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And it was during that time that uh, Jesus Christ was being judged, uh, again, not for his sins, but for our sins. Uh, and so he bore them upon the cross. Now, Isaiah talked about this. This is explained in Isaiah uh, chapter 53, most notably, where the prophet wrote about the suffering servant. And I'm going to jump over there because we've hit this before, but that's all right. We'll hit it briefly again. So if you look back in Isaiah, and really it goes back into Isaiah 52. The, whoever, the, the person who wrote the, uh, the, the chapter and verse breakdown here, uh, I think uh, missed it here. Uh, because really the thought begins in Isaiah 52, verse 13 where he says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Now that's taken right there where it says that his appearance was marred. And that's commonly understood to mean that, he, that when he went through his trials, and remember that he was mocked, uh, verbally, but he was also beaten, that the Roman soldiers beat him in his face. And, uh, on, and this went on for some time. They beat him severely. Now, this was the beatings that he endured before he actually went to the cross. And we know that he was mocked, and a crown of thorns was placed upon his head, and uh, that would have caused the blood to run down his face as well. And, of course, he was, had a robe that was put upon him, and they beat him. Uh, in his face, and they also scourged him 
with a whip. Now, the scourge was like a, a cat of nine tails. It would have had leather strips braided, and they would have put bits of metal and glass in, in the braiding, such that when it came down upon the flesh, it would have stuck like little daggers and ripped chunks of flesh out of the body up to an inch deep. Sometimes people didn't even survive the scourging because that in itself was enough to kill a man. So by the time Jesus got through with his beating by the Roman soldiers and the scourging, uh, one would almost think that he was really, that his face was so swollen uh, that he would have almost been unrecognizable, that his appearance was marred uh, more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations, kings will shut their mouths on account of him, for what had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand." And then he moves on into Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Here, speaking of Jesus in hypostatic union. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. Notice it says, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. In other words, there wasn't anything in his uh, appearance uh, as he grew up, or in his form, that he would have had uh, the appearance of, of, of regalness, you know, that he, that he would not have had sort of a, a kingly stature, like, like we think of people being very regal in appearance, you know, in their facial features and posture and whatnot. But it says here that he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. In other words, if you were watching Jesus walk through a crowd uh, down the street, you would not have picked him out as looking any different from any other plain person uh, at that time. Uh, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Uh, verse 4, surely our griefs he himself bore. Now we're getting into this idea of substitution here. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, notice, smitten of God and afflicted. Smitten of God and afflicted. And notice verse 5. He was pierced through, notice, for our transgressions. And he was crushed, again, for our iniquities, not for his own. The latter part of verse 5 says, The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. And healed there has to do with healing of a relationship uh, because our relationship is fractured. It is uh, broken. Verse 6, here's the state of man. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. That's us. Uh, we're constantly on the stray. Uh, latter part of verse 6, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all that's all of us sinners, helpless, ungodly, dead sinners. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Uh, so again, there's this idea of substitutionary atonement. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before his shearers, so he did not open his mouth. In other words, he did not try to defend himself. Uh, he did not cry out. Uh, during the time of the, of the beatings, uh, even Pilate in John chapter 19 was perplexed at this because he said to Jesus, uh, he said, uh, uh, John 19.10, he says, uh, uh, you don't speak to me. Uh, don't you know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus did answer him. He corrected him. He said, well, he said, actually, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Uh, so he did not cry out uh, during the time of his uh, beatings. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. And notice again he was cut off from the land of the living, again not because of anything he did, but for the transgression of my people, he says, to whom the stroke was due. And his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And here we have it, verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If 
he would render himself as a guilt offering. If he would render himself as a guilt offering. So see, now let me get back to the notes here. So it is simultaneously true that the Father sent, that, that's true, and it is also true that the Son went. Both are in agreement. Both are in agreement here. And so uh, just trying to drive this point home. Now, in the Gospel of John, we're told in John 3, 16 and 17, for God so loved the world, there's his motivation, that he gave his only begotten Son. That's the sending of the Son. He gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him, see, salvation is by grace alone. None of us deserve it. It's God treating us better than we deserve. Salvation is by grace alone. Through faith alone, that is, uh, not by works, it is simply by trusting in Christ, and it is in Christ alone, uh, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But notice verse 17 here. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And so here we have... Uh, this sec section here, uh, God did not send the Son. So we're talking about God sending the Son. Now, God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but he sent the Son into the world to what end? That the world, that, that is lost humanity, uh, might be saved through him. Okay? Might be saved. And there's the use of our Greek verb sozo. So it pops up for us again here. Uh, and then in John 6, 29, Jesus said, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And again, I'm just trying to drive the point here that, um, that the Father sent the Son. This was part of the plan. God the Father determined our salvation. He planned it from eternity past. Uh, he collaborated with the Son and the Spirit. They were all in agreement. He commissioned the Son to come into the world to take upon himself humanity and to live the righteous life that he did. And, uh, and he, but he sent the Son. He sent the Son. And so I'm just simply trying to point out these verses that, again, we're talking about the role of each person here uh, within the Trinity and what role they played in our salvation. Uh, so again, verse 29, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Uh, John 6, 38, I have come down from heaven. This is Jesus talking. I have come down from heaven. Uh, now here, he's talking out of his divine nature, right? He has to be, because he's talking, he's, he's, he's saying, look, I came down, and the idea of coming down here was to fulfill a mission. He's on mission. <laughs> and he came down from heaven. That was, that was the place that he came down from. Not to do my own will, but notice the will of him who what? Who sent me. And so Jesus came in hypostatic union, not to do his own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Uh, in 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, the apostle John wrote, God has sent, now this is God the Father, has sent his only begotten Son into the world into the world. And again, we understand this to be the hypostatic union, that at the point in time when God the Son took upon himself humanity. So God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. In this is love. Not that we loved God, because <laughs> we didn't. Uh, uh, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and how, what form did his love take for us, and sent his son, sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, I love that word propitiation. That is a very theologically rich word. In fact, later on when we get into doing our word study, because we're going to be looking at a, a couple dozen words, I suspect, uh, probably around 20 or more. I, I don't know exactly how many, but we're going to look at a number of words. And that's one of the words that we're going to look at. And I love that word propitiation because it means satisfaction. And it means that what the Father, uh, what Christ accomplished on the cross satisfied 
every righteous demand of the Father. And so when I come with the empty hands of faith and I trust in Christ and Christ alone because man needs only Christ to be saved, at that moment I am forgiven all of my sins, I'm given eternal life, and I'm given the gift of righteousness. And, uh, and so God is satisfied uh, with me because of the work of Christ on my behalf. And so he loved us and sent his son to be, we might say, the sacrifice that satisfies. The sacrifice that was accepted as satisfactory payment for our sins. For our sins. And so we have here, again, where God sent his son to be the satisfaction for our sins. And then in John, 1 John 4, 14, the Father has sent the Son, He has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And so we're just looking at the plan here and uh, the commissioning of the Son and the sending of the Son. And of course, the Father sent uh, and the Son went. Both are in agreement. And then I have a quote here by Wolverd. And Wolverd is a very good Bible teacher. If you get a chance to pick up any of his uh, books, I recommend them very highly. This is a book he wrote called What We Believe. Uh, it's a short little book, but uh, it's uh, very theologically dense. And uh, I, I've learned from some of these guys, so I think I write and teach that way. I think I've, I've been accused of being dense, <laughs> theologically, very compact, you know, in, uh, in some of the statements and whatnot. So that's fine. So here, quoting from Wolverd, he said, Jesus Christ's main purpose in coming to the world was to provide salvation for those who put their trust in him. Jesus expressed this in Luke 19.10 when he said, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. In his public ministry, Jesus spoke of many truths, and his teachings were so comprehensive uh, that a systematic theology could be written based on what he said and taught. However, this was a background to his dying on the cross for our sins. In this supreme act of dying, he fulfilled his main purpose in becoming incarnate of being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so Wolverd captures that main purpose that Christ had in coming into the world. And when it uses the term incarnate, uh, that trans, that's a compound word. You see the preposition in there, which means inside of. And the word uh, carnet, from the word carnos, which means meat. And uh, etymologically, the word is, is somewhat crude because it literally means in meat. We, we speak of chili con carne, chili with meat. And that's the word carnet there. And it's, and it's a very crude term, but it speaks of his taking upon flesh. Uh, that he took upon himself humanity. And so he fulfilled his main purpose in becoming incarnate, that is the God-man, the theanthropic person, when he came in hypostatic union, and of being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, we're going to look later at a word, uh, another theologically rich word called expiation. Expiation. And uh, in the Old Testament, the whole sacrificial system, when you look at the Hebrew verb kafar, which means to cover, it was a temporary arrangement where the animal sacrifice simply covered the sin. It didn't remove it. It didn't remove it. That's not what it was intended to do. But when Christ came into the world and John the Baptist saw him, uh, he said, Behold, notice the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world who takes away, that's expiation, he takes it away, he removes it. And, uh, and so we'll look at that in the future as well. Uh, but that, uh, that concludes tonight's lesson in looking at the role of God the Father uh, with regard to our salvation. Now in the uh, weeks uh, ahead, we're going uh, to look at a number of things related to God the Son, the role of God the Son in our salvation. And I've already completed those notes, and I forget exactly how long it is. It's probably somewhere around 20 pages or something. So uh, we'll work through it carefully, and as usual, we'll chase down a lot of Scripture references. We'll chase down a lot of Scripture uh, on, these, uh, on these particular topics. All right, so that is going to close out uh, this session for tonight, and I will go ahead and close out the live streaming here.
Okay, well, next time we meet, uh, we will jump into the role of God the Son in our salvation, the role of God the Son. And so we will be uh, on that for several weeks, I suspect. So uh, let's go ahead and wrap it up with a word of prayer, and then we'll gather back together next week. Dear Father, we thank you that we can call you Father. We know that this is made possible because from eternity past, uh, you planned our salvation. And you worked with God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. The plan was uh, set forth. Uh, The Son was commissioned uh, to come into the world, and he agreed. He took upon himself humanity. And he came into this world, and he lived an absolutely righteous life, and he committed no sin. The Scripture is very clear on these points. And he went to the cross and died a death he did not deserve in order that we might have a life that we could never earn. And we know that we are saved because we have trusted in Christ and Christ alone as our Savior, because man needs only Christ to be saved. For there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. And so, Father, we are so thankful, and we are thankful that we can take the time to learn these things, and we pray that in the weeks and months ahead that we will continue to be challenged by these things, that we might understand more of who you are, and that we might grow thereby. We ask this now in Christ's name. Amen.